Welcome to Best Movies Never Made, the podcast where we explore interesting and infamous movies that never made it to or through production. I am your co-host, Josh Miller, and with me, as always, is Mr. Steven Scarlatta. How you doing today, Josh? I am doing pretty good. How about yourself? Beautiful. Uh, but in fact, we are doing great. We are happy to be back from hiatus. We had to take some time off to finish up Steve's new documentary, Sharksploitation, which is available on Shudder and AMC Plus, anywhere those exist. Uh, if you live in a territory that does not have Shudder or AMC Plus, fear not. I know that they are working on making deals for it to hopefully roll out everywhere around the world. Just might take a little time. So stay patient. Um, but much like we did last week with Jaws 3 People Zero, we are doing another shark-related series starting with this episode. Another episode, another unmade project that we've been holding off on until shark exploitation was done and have been dying to do because it's just so much fun. And I am talking about The Meg, uh, which really, Steve, right? I mean, that's one of those movies I feel like has been in serious development hell for decades with just zillions of different versions absolutely yeah this is one of the ones i've been keeping track of for years because this was something i couldn't wait to see uh, and we knew that it would be multiple episodes so i i hope you find the unmade meg interesting because you're going to be living with it for a little while here this is part one uh, and we are very happy to welcome our guest for part one, Mr. Craig Perry, who you may know from, I'd say, two of the franchises that most defined the kind of early aughts, you know, turn of the most the recent <laughs> century, which is American Pie and Final Destination. Craig, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I really appreciate the opportunity to come and share whatever uh, nuggets of wisdom uh, I can recollect from the 20 years ago when the saga <laughs> of Meg first swam up from the depths. Uh, well, why don't you, before we even get into it, why don't you kind of give us a quick version of your origin story, especially because I feel like seeing the dates we have on this initial Meg stuff, I feel like this was kind of early on in uh, your producing career as far as the credits we see on screen, I mean. Uh, so do you want like the, the whole thing or just how I, this thing fell into my lap? Uh, give me the whole thing. Yeah. Well, how would you even uh, get into the business? Oh my gosh. Uh, well, I was living under an overpass uh, making, no, um, <laughs> I, I was fortunate uh, that I always kind of knew I wanted to be in entertainment business. And uh, I came out, I went to Syracuse university and I graduated in 90 and came out here and did what everyone does. I was fortunate to get into the mail room. At New Line Cinema. That was my wow, first job. Old school. It, is, it is like the embodiment of the cliche. And after a few months there, I wound up being a reader for Silver Pictures uh, over at Warner Brothers. And after three months of doing that, and not because I'm smart, but just because I was lucky, I wound up being promoted to story editor, mostly because I, by dint of reading everything, kind of knew what was going on. I knew where the trains were and when they were running. Uh, and then kind of made my way up the development chain there. Uh, and then I left and went to be a VP uh, with Scott Rudin, which I did for a couple of years. And that's why my hair is gray. And <laughs> I say Joel Silver to Scott Rudin. <laughs> uh, <laughs> as, as people say, had Don Steele not passed away, I would have gone for the triple crown. Um, <laughs> so uh, and then uh, the person that I was with in the mailroom uh, had at that point become a manager of writers. And his name was Warren Zide. And I had stayed in touch with Warren all during these development executive years as his star sort of rose and he was sort of selling scripts left, right and center. And he wound up with a deal at Disney. And once uh, our paths recrossed and we partnered up, I found myself at a deal at Disney and trying to service <laughs> that. So um, in the and Disney at that point, you have to remember, it wasn't the Disney we know today. There were other labels underneath Disney. Was this Hollywood that, Pictures? There was Hollywood Pictures. There was Touchstones Pictures. And then there was Disney. And that was their way to sort of um, separate the different genres and ratings in a way that they could really flood the marketplace with content without damaging and sullying the actual brand that Disney has as family entertainment. Another thing to remember is this was back when like there's this weird technology called DVD that was really taking hold. And it was the kind of thing where people, even if you, uh, North American releasing was sort of like the loss leader. You could make so much money um, putting out a DVD that every Tuesday, yeah, I'll go pick it up for eight bucks, but it only costs a dollar to make. So it was massive amounts of money coming in. So people were looking to 
do 30, 40, 50, 60 titles a year, each studio. And now we're doing maybe 12 on a hot day when you need a, a, a drink of water. So the amount of movies that were getting made is astonishing. And we were just fortunate enough to intersect with that appetite. And we had the aptitude to make it happen. And that's one of the things that led to the manuscript for Meg coming into coming across our transom through Kenneth Atchity, who is a uh, manager of writers, and he's also um, a book promoter and an editor, and he has a whole little sort of like workshop, and he does dozens of titles every year. Meg was one of the things that he found, came across our transom and said, there's something here. And we read it, and we agreed. <laughs> we agreed. Uh, and I think that's a great way to segue to Steve. Uh, Steve, you can fill us in on it. Because I, I vaguely remember at the time, uh, you know, I've, you know, pre-internet, and obviously I was a teenager, so I wasn't necessarily uh, digging into details of this type of thing. But I feel like this was one of the first times I'd really heard of something that had a bidding war before the book even came out or existed. Yeah, I, I don't. You know, I was trying to find more info on that, but I'm going to read through what I have. Let me see. I'm going to start from the beginning really quick. Um, Meg wasn't the first book about Megalodons. There was a book in 1983 called Megalodon about a nuclear submarine is destroyed and evidence points to a Megalodon. Oh, wow. And yeah. And um, yeah, I found it on Amazon. I wish I would have known about it sooner. I like to pick it up. It's a cool cover. It's like a Megalodon, like, and there's like a little... Uh, round sub it's going after and in 1987 there was another book called carcaridon that's the other word for shark right i can't really pronounce it very well and that one was about a megalodon that was trapped in an iceberg and then the iceberg melts and then there's a and then the <laughs> oh, feeding man. frenzy begins caveman from scooby-doo yeah megalodon shark. yeah those, those two books sound kind of cool and those were both written in the 80s Knowing and how then, lawsuit happy people are, I'm kind of surprised the guy who wrote that early 80s one didn't come after Alton since a nuclear nuclear sub is featured in Meg. Yeah. Well, you know what? It's interesting you talk about that. Like ideas aren't really copyrightable. The execution of the idea is copyrightable. So when people say, you stole my idea, it's like, well, no, there's usually 30 or 40 versions of that idea it's the specificity of how it's yeah. executed that people can sort of point to that's why you don't see that many uh, of the lawsuits over copyright ever really succeed because often it's just someone had the same idea and they yeah i would have been surprised like if it succeeded i'm more just surprised that this person didn't try it might have been different if the movie had gotten made back yes that's true the, the author's probably long dead before yeah. <laughs> the, the, our movie got made yeah like 83 87 that's only like you know, like in if it came out in 97, let's say, yeah, 10 years ago. So maybe. Uh, but yeah, but Alton's the 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 author, Steve Alton, said that the original inspiration was from in 1975 when he read Jaws as a teenager. Then he started reading more about sharks. And then eventually he read about uh, Great White Shark's cousin, the Megalodon. And then in 1995, he read a magazine article about the Mariana Trench and thought, what if a shark lived down there? And he started writing Meg uh, from 1995 into 1996. And then when it was done, he found an agent. And then in May 96, finished the book. The agent took the first 100 pages with a treatment and they took it out. And I guess that's when Disney bought it. And by them buying it, that's when they were able to get a publishing deal, like a better publishing deal on the book. So that's, that's this that. is all true. <laughs> this is all true. And then June 19th, uh, 1996 is when it was officially announced that Disney acquired Meg, Tom Wheeler, who would go on to write Puss in Boots and the Lego Ninjaro movie. Is and he created that, the TV know. series The Cape. Yeah, I loved The Cape. I was going to bring I'm that not up. familiar with The Cape. It was, uh, I mean, it was after, it was well into the superhero glut of the aughts. Uh, um, at, I think it was like 2000 or 2011. Uh, it only lasted like one season, I believe. One season, yeah. But it was just, you know, in his original superhero idea. It was fun. Yeah, and I, I kept reading. I, you know what? It was so funny. I couldn't find it when I was doing research, but I always remembered that they sold it because they were putting out there that it was Jurassic Shark. That's why they sold it. They sold it on that term. Well, I guess, but... Craig, yeah. I mean, talk about what you can realize it was a long time ago. What you remember of 
this happening of this 100 well, pages and a treatment or whatever it was. Yes, all of that is true. It came in and this was in the wake of um, Man's Best Friend, uh, the new line John Lafia movie, and that had been sold Jaws with Paws. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, I got to give credit to Warren and Kenneth because they were like, no, we'll call this Jurassic Shark. So there we are drafting behind sort of the wordplay that sort of immediately makes people understand trailer, poster, TV spots will angle in to how you present this movie to the marketplace. Uh, and we literally took the rest of the book, which is not as let's say effective as that opening bit. So we like made sure that we were going to put our best foot forward with the idea of it's Jurassic shark plus the sort of treatment that this takes you through how it unfolds. And it went, and we were trying to get, cause we also represented Tom Wheeler as a writer because uh, they we were managing writers, as I mentioned earlier. So plugging Tom who had had a lot of success um, setting up scripts and pitches that were big sci-fi action ideas. Uh, and he had kind of a reputation as a guy who knew how to do it. So we uh, took peanut butter, added chocolate, and then we were able to get uh, Hollywood pictures to say, you know what, this is something that fits into what we think we can do. Now, that was, I think, a bit premature because when you start really thinking about what it would take to bring a huge shark like that to life financially, suddenly you realize, wait a second, this is a hundred plus million dollar movie and it's 1997 now. What are we going to do? So, yeah, I mean, there's and there's some huge stuff in these well, in all these scripts. Um, but I also also just noting, um, yeah, because this was only a few years after Jurassic Park had come out and set the world on fire and still before Jurassic Park Two: the Lost World. So I, mm-hmm. the idea of having your own or, you know, dinosaur IP to play with, I'm sure was irresistible to Disney at first. Uh, at until, first. you know, um, and. I mean, there's a lot to go into. It is just funny because the movie did get made and ostensibly, I guess it's it's still the same basic idea, but it almost feels, to me, the movie that got made feels like you told me in like an elevator ride, you gave me the like one paragraph summary of the Meg. And then a few months later, I was trying to remember what you said. And that was the movie that got made. Because it's the same idea that it comes from the Mariana Trench. Jonas Taylor's our hero, who's like a mm-hmm. deep sea diver. There's a Meg that goes around. Uh, there's like a East Asian company that has some kind of aquatic base, but basically that's it. Like, uh, and most surprising to me, uh, and we can kind of get into more of this, is that the book has some really great, very cinematic set pieces, none of which are in. The movie that got made and i guess that's what i find confusing is that you know little things like like in the the book and most all of these drafts we have um tanaka is the name of he's a japanese guy and you know i get that china was a co-financer of the movie that got made so they changed those characters chinese that's changing the wallpaper whatever that barely matters <laughs> and all the stuff in that they're building like a whale lagoon in the movie that got made it's an underwater research lab basically the same thing um but right off the bat the thing that seems so strange to me that they lost and i love the fact that it's the opening of the trailer for the meg 2 so they clearly they're like we got to bring that back is that the opening of the book and all these scripts is that we're you know 70 million years ago we see some nice duck billed dinosaurs going about their life and a t-rex comes out and it's gonna kill them and it's chasing them into the surf and then all of a sudden the meg jumps out and eats the t-rex you know it's the ultimate like oh you think the t-rex in jurassic park is scary well <laughs> our dinosaur is even scarier it's a great setup totally uh but if you imagine back in the day, though, here you, everyone reads that in the sort of hot spec market and goes, yeah, that's what we want. And then they realize the Lost World's coming out. They realize, wait a second, there's like the Universal's kind of cornered the market on T-Rexes. And, and is 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 that really where we can go and do better than? So there's an inevitable shift. And what's funny is like thinking about it because I haven't read the actual manuscript. When you bring that up, like, oh, that's right. Of course. Yeah. OK, that's in there. Now I understand why it evolved. It just evolves because of the sort of the shifting sands of politics and expectation that happened over time. So the fact that they're going back to it just means that the success of the Meg that got made, they're like, 
What else is in the vault? There's got to be something else to hear that the IP we own, we can use and pull from. There you go. My, my my theory was that it was in every, it felt like, I didn't read any of the later drafts yet, but it felt like the John DeBont era, which we're not going to get into this episode. It was in that era's draft where I think he actually did an animatronic of it That's that, that was done. I had a friend mm-hmm. of mine that saw it. And ever since then, I've been like, I got to see it. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, I been, and I have never been able to see it. But anyway, I think it was when that that first Jurassic World came out, there was that uh, aquatic creature that eats the T-Rex type mutated villain at the ending and pulls him back in the, you know, I think it's going after Bryce Dallas Howard and it's about to kill her. (laughs) And then then that big aquatic fish comes out and kills it. I I was thinking, is that why they took it out? That was my suspicion why it's not in. Well, that's maybe why they took it out. Oh, the one that got made, you're saying? Yeah, because it was in every draft and it's in the book. It's like the best, you know, I think it's what we were all waiting for if you read the book or knew about the movie and it just was missing from that new one. And I'm sure- Craig knows this game well enough. There's also this weird thing that happens, I feel, when something's been in development hell for a while, is that anything from those other scripts slowly develops a stink on it, even if it's a good idea and it should stay in there. Everyone develops sort of the psychology of like, well, these were the scripts that couldn't make it across the finish line. So again, and I what's wanna... consistent among all of them? This opening scene, it's got to be the opening scene. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it's a death knell. It's an, an it's an anvil around the neck. Well, all, all these drafts, for the most part, are 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 like real adaptations of the book. Because uh, you know, in the book that got basically the movie that got made, almost none of the characters are the same. And they'll even weird things where they'll take a character's name and give it to somebody else who has a completely different function in the story and different personality. Jonas Taylor is the hero in all of them, but, you know, this is a late 90s book, so it very much has that kind of like late, you know, post-Jurassic Park, Independence Day kind of high concept disaster movie vibe. So, yes, he was a deep sea diver who had an encounter with a Meg that caused him to freak out and accidentally caused the death of some people. Uh, But the one that movie that got made uh jason statham is very much a post like fast and furious sort of super awesome action hero of course the accident that he was involved with in the past they make him like way less culpable uh, than the character in the book who's sort of like racked with guilt because he did cause two people to die because he freaked out when he saw the mag really the only other character other than the idea that there's an older east asian man who's daughter or in some of these drafts it's his niece is kind of like a quasi love interest for Jonas Uh, but the only other character who really carries on through all the scripts into the one that got made is Frank Heller who I forget the actor's name in the movie that got made he's the guy from the Longmire TV show but he was the guy who was you know part of the mission that Jonas Taylor did years ago that got people killed who's just like you can't hire Taylor he's insane (laughs) blah 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 I mean, the other thing that didn't make it into the new movie too, and it, there was a lot, there was concept art all over online is the surfer. Well, that, also, yeah. yeah, I was going to say, um, and again, again, as you're saying, kind of the Jurassic world uh, gobbled up some of these ideas. But yeah, because the surfing thing is a big thing from the book. Um, actually, a lot of the stuff from these scripts ended up getting used and i'm sure it's just a coincidence in shark attack 3 megalodon which i feel is a movie that even (laughs) if people haven't seen i guarantee you you've seen gifs people have posted of like riding a jet ski accidentally into the gaping mouth of the meg craig just so you know that whole franchise was written by my college uh buddy who was the dp in my student film so that is my one relationship to the shark attack franchise from from avi learner's grindhouse (laughs) Uh, shark attack 3 megalodon uh is definitely featured in steve's shark exploitation documentary excellent Um, but yeah that coming soon to shutter yes (laughs) (laughs) thank you uh But that surfing scene, it's in pretty much all these scripts as well. It varies a little bit, but same basic idea of the shark popping, almost like, you know, the, the, the famous, is it Jaws? Jaws 3 is the one that has the water skiers, right? And has the poster where it's the girl water skiing in front of the giant 
shark behind her. Basically, that stuff just kind of keeps happening over and over again. In one of these versions, it's not surfing, it's jet skiing. I love that kind of like weird lateral change that happens in rewrites that I'm like, I mean, jet skis are fun. I feel like surfing's maybe more fun. But like I said, that has the person accidentally riding their jet ski right into the shark's mouth. I also like in one of them, like the fin appears and people are like, oh, they think it's like a wind surfer. Um, but a lot of these have the image, and I think it's right out of the book that was in one of the Jurassic World movies for like a half second. I feel like it was the kind of thing they showed us in the trailer and got us all excited, but in the movie, it's part of a montage where it's a bunch of people surfing and there's like the big wave coming up and you just see looming through the water in the wave, uh, the big dinosaur in, in these, it was the Meg. But like, yeah, all, all like the nuclear submarine. I mean, this first Wheeler one, again, to your point, <laughs> things of like, oh, this movie's gonna be expensive. There's this huge set piece where, so one, there's, one thing that isn't in the finished movie that's in all of these in the book is there's a company called Jams Tech, uh, which stands for Japanese Marine Science Technology Center, who had paid for this like whale lagoon that Tanaka was building uh, with the understanding that he was inventing this thing called Eunice that's an earthquake detecting system. And... I can't remember what they're actually doing in the finished movie. I think they're just doing like research, but in all, in the book, we can never the... figure it out either just to make you feel better. <laughs> we never do yeah. But, but in the book and all these other scripts, DJ, who is Tanaka's son, this whole thing where they like the Eunice thing has been destroyed and they don't know why. And again, the, the difference in these Wheeler scripts is pretty minor. And the very first one, it's actually very similar to what got finished is that DJ's down there inspecting what happened to the Eunice and gets mysteriously attacked and they have to go get Jonas to go rescue him. In most of the other drafts, it's actually what it is in the book where the Eunice thing has just been destroyed and they need someone to go down there and look at it and they go get him. In some of these, they take right out of the book where he's giving like a big seminar about how animals could still be living beneath a, you know, heat cloud at the bottom of a mariana trench uh very indiana joe or actually funny actually reminding me even more of the uh like da vinci code books which actually came after this so alton was not was not borrowing from that but i was gonna say that there's this big uh set piece in the wheeler scripts where jamstack has like a whaler boat they're using to try to capture the mag that's another thing that keeps varying from these is whether or not jonas's goal is to kill the Meg or capture it again minor detail but there's jamstack on the whaler scene the navy has uh, a nuclear sub uh <laughs> there's also this is not from the book so this was a wheeler creation i don't know if you remember any of this craig there's a cruise ship that seriously straight out of triangle of sadness it's getting like because there's also this is all during like a big storm uh and the, there's a whole thing of the chef freaking out because their freezer's been dead for a full day and so they imply that actually what brings the meg over is they're dumping all like a week's worth mm -hmm. of rotten meat they're overboard all the ship yep, yeah accidentally chumming uh, and then we're seeing people in the dining room as the ship's getting like rocked back and forth and total triangle of sadness and then our uh Jonas and our other heroes show up and there's this so it's whaling ship trying to harpoon the Meg and a nuclear submarine and the cruise ship and our hero on their like research vessel all in this like big crazy set piece but you have to remember back in the day we were fighting against all of like the Roland Emmerich Independence Day everything with Armageddon there were these this huge movies with these like big primary moments of like spectacle and if you weren't able to compete with that you weren't going to get made so i think that we were sort of victim to the, the the times where we had to make sure that those big set pieces were there i i remember somebody pitching me something says yes and then the sphinx gets up and walks away i'm like okay never seen that before i don't know what the fuck's uh -huh. happening but okay that's pretty cool. <laughs> there was a there was a there was an institutionalized uh uh thing that writers had to do which was to come up with the biggest best brightest most spectacular most unbelievable and then try and figure out how to bake it into the story which is one of the reasons why i think there's been a constant with all the Meg drafts and then these outliers as I think they are reacting to the tastes and sensibilities as the decades went forward. Well, and that's, and I guess for the record, 
I had a lot of fun with the new Meg movie and I feel like sure. I'm very excited for the sequel because it feels to me like the sort of thing where in success for the sequel, they're now maybe going to be doing a bunch of the things that I know me and other people kind of wished were in the first one. And what I love about this era that's very in keeping with the book is that post Independence Day, the Roland Emmerich. Like it's a big disaster movie where there's like characters from the military and like, mm-hmm. you know, evil businessmen because the whole <laughs> jams tech corporation basically morphed into just rain wilson and what got made and he's more of just this wacky billionaire who's actually mostly well-meaning and then just kind of gets selfish and is like a dick but i love the like 90s disaster movie vibe um the other big set piece that i love that's in all these scripts and it's be interesting to track uh, when this disappears, but is the, it's the end of the book. And this is the thing, actually, I'm most surprised they didn't keep because it feels like the perfect thing to have Jason Statham do in your insane Megalodon movie is that in the book and all these scripts, Jonas defeats the Meg by allowing himself to get swallowed in his like underwater glider. And it's, you know, it's like fucking Pinocchio. He's in the Meg's stomach and he gets out of his underwater glider and like climbs through the inside of the Meg until he reaches its heart. Mm-hmm. Um, and so actually, this is another weird thing. And Steve, I don't know if you have details about this. It's actually harder to research than I would have thought is Alton has done multiple versions of the book. So if mm-hmm. you just went on Amazon and bought the book right now, you wouldn't have this copy that I'm holding up that I specifically bought on eBay once I found this out. Uh, as he has revised it. I don't think it's like major changes, but I think one of the changes is that in this original version, which is in all these scripts, he literally is stabbing the heart, like with a knife. Mm-hmm. Um, I think maybe in the book, he's even actually using a Meg tooth. Yeah, it's to his snap. good luck charm. Good, yeah. Uh, <laughs> That's what he kills it, yeah. And then I think, I, again, I'm, and I could be wrong, hopefully not, but I believe in his revised version, he blows up the Meg from the inside. I'm not really sure why that changed, if I have that correct. Nonetheless, whether I'm right or wrong on that, it's in all these scripts and it's such a, you know, how do you top the ending of Jaws? This is how you top it. (laughs) Roy Scheider (laughs) did not literally go inside the shark (laughs) and kill it from the inside out. By swimming through the innards to get to the heart. Yeah. It's pretty badass. And I would have loved to have seen (laughs) Jason Statham do that. Um, well, Steve, I guess maybe take us through some of the more steps here, because again, there's not, there isn't a huge amount of differences between the Thomas Wheeler and the Jeffrey Bohm. Is that how you say it, Bohm? Yes, Jeff Bohm. Um, and for people who don't know him, he had a hell of a run in the late eighties and early nineties. Credits: Dead Zone, Lost Boys, Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade, Lethal Weapon two and three. And I'm leaving very notable movies out of that. He co-created Adventures of Briscoe County Jr. So he's always got a place in my heart just for that. Um, (laughs) But yeah, but Steve, what do you got? Oh yeah, really to touch back on the cruise ship thing, what's wild is because I've been on top of the Meg since I first read about it, like in the, in the nineties, like I was like losing my mind. I'm like, wait, is this, this is going to be a movie. I was so excited. (laughs) The cruise ship sequence would have been amazing. Like that would have, like, it it kills me. That wasn't made back in the nineties. And Steve, that's that's not in the book, right? That's not in the book, but, but when, they were trying to get it made throughout the last 10 years in 2017, one of the teaser posters of the Meg and I posted it on my Instagram as soon as it came out from 2017 is a cruise ship. And it's so tiny. And the jaws of the Meg is rising up <laughs> about to just swallow an entire cruise ship. And it's like, I mean, that's like a shark. That's like way more exaggerated than in the movie. Uh, I, I just love that teaser poster. Like how it's going to swallow a a cruise ship with no problem. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, we'll post that. But uh, yeah, so so here's the crazy thing. When I mentioned that uh, in June, they June 96, they officially announced that uh, Disney acquired it and Wheeler was going to adapt. Five months later, in November 96, another Megalodon movie was announced. Uh, I don't know if you remember this, but Citadel... Uh, was going to do for the option for TV and film, but it looks like it was going to be for NBC because it was on the cover. Charles Wilson extinct. That was the name of the book. Um, Yeah. Um, And it, 
it's called Extinct. And the guys that did um, that awesome Mario Van Peebles movie, Full Eclipse, and then they did that made-for-cable movie, Citizen X, they were going to produce it for NBC. And, and you know, because I guess the spring before before Peter Benchley's Beast was on NB, was on uh, a channel and did very well. So they so it seemed like Extinct was announced. It ne- Of course, it never got made. Did you guys remember that? I have vague recollections of that knocking us off of our off of our trail just because you're like, oh, shit, we've got a low budget TV competitor that's going to take it won't nearly be what we would have done, but it's going to take the air out of our sails, you know? Yeah, because I was curious about that. Yeah, because I always remember seeing that book with that little thing on the cover. Soon to be an NBC movie, you know, but of course, never came out. All right. So the first draft was delivered in um, December 96 and uh, Josh discussed that uh may 97 following year is when an additional draft by wheeler was written and then in may also 97 looks like that's when jeffrey boehm came on to start writing and so what did you what happened there between wheeler and do you remember like when the writers switched over what was going on if memory serves it was the sort of thing where they wanted to to justify the cost of this movie. Sometimes you need to have a certain name on the cover page to give people plausible deniability for its success. So hiring Jeffrey, given his past track record, would have given all the executives something to point to. It puts it at a different uh, uh, level in the pile at agents' desks. Sometimes you're literally buying a name to put on the cover page. And as mm-hmm. you said, he, he made changes, some of them good, some some of them, if I recall, not as good, if, if you ask me, um, for just entertainment value. But that was one of the reasons. Like, if we're going to do this, we need to have a little bit of protection here to have somebody on the cover page. It's going to get a director. It's going to get all the sort of uh, big mockers on board to make sure that this hits the political uh, uh, hotspot at Disney, which unfortunately, because I don't think the draft was necessarily uh, more successful than Tom's just differently successful and it didn't do what it needed to do to get it past up. And I think also this, the sheer cost was just terrifying to everybody yeah. there. And uh, yeah, I would say in, in Wheeler's defense, this very much feels <laughs> like, as you were saying, you brought someone new in not to fix a project that wasn't working because a lot of lateral changes. And I do kind of feel like overall, it wasn't even quite as good as the Wheeler one. This one's interesting though, because again, it's all basically the same thing. The major difference between this is the kind of the worst character in the book, as far as just we're reading it now and as cringy is Maggie, who is Jonas's well in the book. She is his wife who is just, actively cheating on him and is kind of like horrible and selfish uh and it's funny because in the finished movie he does have an ex-wife but she's very nice and normal and it's more like their relationship fell apart because it was his fault um so this incorporates the character of maggie but i'm sure bowman everyone was like we need to improve this character so she's not a horrible monster um it, it is more like in her first scene, she lets him know that she's taking a Nat Geo job that's going to be gone for months and feels that they should split up and then returns later um, in her function as like a you know video journalist to be reporting on the Meg. That's another thing I kind of like from these that feels very disaster movie that the new one didn't. The new one, the one that got made feels way more horror movie to me where it's about our heroes are the only one who know this thing happened meaning a Meg has gotten free and they need to stop it. Uh, in these other ones, it becomes like global news uh, and it's sort of fun uh, how everyone gets involved. Uh, this one also, yeah, kind of weird changes. Like instead of Tanaka, now it's Malcolm Reinhardt. Mm-hmm. Uh, Terry Evans is now Reinhardt's niece. Uh, the other big difference, like if anything, I would say the biggest difference for this set piece wise is okay. I keep bringing this character too. Mac is a character from the book who's like one of Jonas's old helicopter buddies, and they met when they were both in a military like loony bin, as Jonas calls it, because that's where they stuck him after his you know told everybody that he saw a giant shark at the bottom of the trench in his you know accident from the past. Um, this character exists in the movie that got made played by Cliff Curtis, but again, 
like he and Jonas used to be friends, but it seems like there's really nothing similar about that. Uh, and this Bohm script, his name is James McCready and everyone calls him Mac for some reason. And this, his name is Horace McKay and everyone calls him Mac. <laughs> I don't know why I'm so fascinated by these kind of random pointless changes, especially when it's like an adaptation of existing material that already has the names for you. But back in the day, I had a very, very, very successful, famous screenwriter from the 80s and 90s who has and I won't mention the name just because of what I'm going to say, but he has had some of, the, <laughs> some of the, your favorite movies, like the like, iconic movies of all time. Anytime he did a rewrite, the first thing he did was go in and change all the names. So that at least perception wise, if it yeah. illustration, it would feel like he had done more work. This is a 100% new movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sneaky. Um, sorry. But so the the main different set piece that I and this one is one of those just like, wow, for this to happen so early in the movie is so completely insane is that. So this one, we actually track Jonas it begins with his accident where it's him and Davis and Kenner are two other guys and he sees a Meg and the thing he his accident that he did here. That's also from the book is that he rose to the surface too quickly and everybody got the bends and the other two guys died and Jonas was just in the hospital, but while he's in the hospital and he meets Mac, uh, they escape the hospital and Mac, this is actually, I like this line is as they're escaping, he's like, Jonas asks Mac, like, why are you even in this military hospital? And he's like, oh, I stole a helicopter. And he says this while they're stealing a helicopter. Uh, I think because they were trying to watch Monday Night Football and they wouldn't let them watch it in the hospital. So they fly the helicopter to the Monday Night Football game. Frank Gifford and Al Michaels, who were the Monday Night Football hosts at the time, are in the script with dialogue. Mac lands the helicopter on the 50-yard line. We even cut to Maggie's, you know, in a far-off-flung far flung place in a bar and sees this happening on the TV and, like, shakes her head. And I was just like, wow, that's an insane scene. A very subtle, delicate character moment, for sure. <laughs> um, but, yeah, again, this is... Basically, you know, it had this is the one that has the jet ski competition instead of the surfers. Again, the most notable differences are just the fact that Maggie's in this scene. Uh, another character from the book is Bud Harris, who Maggie's having an affair with in the book. A minor version of him is just in here as Maggie's new boyfriend, and he's like a gajillionaire with his own fancy yacht, which becomes relevant later in the movie when, again, Frank Heller, the guy different in all these scripts i think in this one he has no prior relationship with jonas and he's an alcoholic he just resents that when jonas shows up when malcolm reinhardt the tanaka of this script brings him in he's just like oh you're giving jonas all this cool stuff i want so he's sort of a sub boss villain that jonas has to deal with but he gets fired and he ends up going to bud after Maggie gets killed and they both want revenge on the Meg because in this version, they're trying to capture the Meg to study it and protect it or whatever. So the bad guys are the ones who want to destroy the Meg, even though Meg's just going around constantly eating people Uh, and Frank and Bud take Bud's super yacht and they go out to destroy it. And I should say another thing these scripts all take from the book is that at the end, they're like, or all these, actually, I don't think this is in the book, but all these scripts have the same thing where they knock the Meg out. Again, it's different whether or not it was Jonas and the heroes doing it because they want to save the Meg or in some of these other drafts, Jonas wants to kill the Meg and it's the bad guys who want to save the Meg. Actually, before I even move on, do you have any memories of that, of like that kind of, because that feels very much like notes, you know, you're getting from hundred percent. There was yeah. a whole, like, like to kill or not to kill was an endless pendulum that we had to ride back and forth because there were people who knew that, you know, dramatically it was probably the right thing to do to say, I must kill the beast, but they couldn't stand the prospect of getting letters from people who were angry that we were killing wildlife. It's, yeah. it's, it's the age old thing. And this endangered species. It is a, this is a miracle from the, from the depths that we have to preserve. So that was, and and like I always fall on the side of just do what's dramatically right and not worry about like who, who whoever's going to write a letter uh, uh, expressing their offense, I'll frame it and put it in my bathroom with the others. I don't care what's going to be dramatically <laughs> sound and appropriate for both the characters and for the situation. But uh, you guys, I, I, I'm having vague flashbacks and I hope maybe you can help me. 
because I know that obviously Meg was Steve's baby. I mean, this was literally the thing that like like he had been inspired for you know most of his adult life and finally putting it to paper. I do recall him being very frustrated that things were evolving from the book, that the it was not a direct one-to-one. And during that time, if I'm not mistaken, he wrote and handed in a draft that he had done of his own. I was going to ask you about, because we have that one and there's no date on it. So mm-hmm. I wasn't sure when Steve was going to bring it up. Uh, and what what's fascinating about that is we had, when we did our six-episode unmade Batman movies, and that's only from... It stops at the Tim Burton one because oh god, there's, who knows how many are after that? But Bob Kane, the creator of Batman, did a similar thing where he didn't like how these scripts were turning out, so he wrote his own Batman movie. The Steve Alton thing makes a little more sense, and that is extremely faithful to the book. Unsurprisingly, it's basically just like you took the book and put it in the screenplay format. Put it in the screenplay format. Yeah. Well, that's 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 literally what was going on. Is he was so frustrated because of the amount of time and emotional energy he spent to getting the book and getting it sort of to the place where and if you recall like his he was like financially and uh personal like life everything was at an inflection point so when all this happened for him it was all attributable to meg and its success so of course he would think that it would be manna from heaven and that he had like figured out the grand alchemy of how stories of sharks should be told um (laughs) So I just remember it became a political problem because when you have that draft tossed in and we're trying to sort of manage uh, expectations and make sure that the train keeps moving towards hopefully getting it made, it just kind of threw something else in there because suddenly it impacts chain of title. Like there's a whole lot of stuff that came out of it when this draft just showed up. And he said, hey, guys, I have it. I fixed it. Well, he was not privy to all of the things that went through the Wheeler draft to the Bohm draft to to accommodate some of the studio's uh, concerns and expectations. So I just recall when it landed, it sort of shut things down for a little bit as we try to figure, well, what do we do with it? Yeah. How do we manage it? Uh, and this is not a uh, an aspersion cast on Steve. I mean, you know, I, I would have no, done I'd the same thing. i do the same it's, thing, it's, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, um, how, but how do you handle that? Because that that's not just even your the project's own political issues that's like a wga violation because he was not hired to adapt well we couldn't read it we were not really allowed to look at it it was it showed up and we're like we can't look at this you do realize that that's something we can't look at we can never hand it to the studio and say look at look what steve did isn't it so much better like none of this can happen which was an education for him and it wasn't, again, making a qualitative assessment of whether his version was good, bad, or indifferent. Quantitatively, we literally could not do anything with it. But because it was there, because, remember, they had just optioned it. Like, there was, like, not, there was, at some point, it's going to wind up boomeranging back to Steve Alton. How do we figure out how to manage, even if that becomes the case, how he can cash and carry and walk out? If we have a chain of title problem at that point, it's going to get even worse if it ever gets put in turnaround. So, there was just a lot to navigate um, both in terms of personality. Remember at that point, we were still managing him as a client. So there's all oh, yeah. that to go into it as well. So just, uh, it did, I think one of the things that uh, put that little pause in the timeline there, just a little bit, a couple months, was figuring out that. And then the Jeff Bohm thing is, again, he didn't do a huge amount of work, but it was just enough to sort of uh, shift its perception internally. But then I think it just went down. So that's, I'm glad that you say that that's what, because I remember reading that draft or knowing it came in. I I read it, of course. I was just like, okay, it's just a book. Um, And it's, it's not fueled by the challenges that we face to get it further down the field in the studio realm. Uh, so I won't say it was worthless because clearly it was cathartic for him, <laughs> but yeah. it was worthless and more problematic than I would ever hoped it would have been. So any writers out there or where people who have a book, don't adapt your own work unless you get the rubber stamp to do so because you are causing <laughs> more problems unwittingly than you ever imagined. And, oh, what's funny about his too, just reading it, so huge, uh, some stuff of the Wheeler and Bohm drafts are and alton's just takes his book and the things he leaves out like he doesn't have the nuclear submarine mm-hmm. right i don't know that that would have been the most expensive of all seppies but in some ways this is almost more like fiscally uh responsible than 100 <laughs> percent. i think because he was hearing because we were keeping him updated that look this is getting to be a really big movie i think he he put on his i'm going to save the day hat and come in mm-hmm. and show them how to do it by carving out things that 
might seem expensive, but honestly, a, a big sub going through dark waters is not the cost barrier that you you don't have to break. <laughs> yeah, so his definitely has all the stuff with Maggie be cheating on Jonas and uh, all that. I, I do want before we move further the the bohm thing also adds steve tell me i don't think this is from the book where they're out looking for jonas i think they've come up with the plan that they're either going to capture it or kill it with a rocket launcher um <laughs> then we cut to a whale watching feeding trip that has a bunch of school kids on a field trip and prior to that scene we've seen oh so the bone one which i don't think the wheeler draft has any of Bohm introduces a thing from the book, which is when the Meg gives birth. In the book, she gives birth to multiple pups and eats them all except for one. Uh, in this one, I think she just gives birth to two. And we see a bunch of killer whales hunt and kill one of the pups. So then we cut to this whale watching thing where all these school kids are like, oh, look, orcas. And then the Meg just shows up and systematically kills all the orcas in super violent ways. And blood is like spraying on all the kids. And then the Meg eats the front <laughs> of the whale watching boat. So it's sinking. So Jonas and Mac have to show up and save them all. Uh, very hilarious scene. Oh, Bohm also has when Jonas is intentionally flying his underwater glider into the shark's mouth. He's like, eat me, you mother foot. And then that, you know, where it gets cut off right when he goes in. Oh, the also... late 90s. <laughs> yeah. I also, I did want to read, um, just because, you know, Bohm's a good writer. I wanted to read his version of the scene where Jonas is in the Meg's stomach. Oh, this is also where, because this has the version, like I mentioned, where Frank Heller... Uh, the guy who hates Jonas and Bud, Maggie's new guy, take Bud's yacht and they're like dropping depth charges to try to like kill the sleeping Meg when they're dragging the Meg into Monterey Bay. Um, but then it, stuff goes wrong. The Meg eats Frank. So then when Jonas is in the Meg's stomach, like Frank's corpse, I almost imagine it looking like that great shot in a, Chuck Russell's, you know, the blob from the 80s where we don't know what happened to the sheriff and we just see his face slam up against the phone booth and all the goop. That's how I'm imagining that looking. But now we have this interior cardiac chamber. I just love the, I love having slug lines saying we're inside the shark. It's great. Okay. Below the stomach, Jenna slides into the chamber head first using a small but powerful flashlight, a fleshy <laughs> crawl space no more than a foot high. He crawls forward until the chamber widens, and now the thumping of the heart becomes a bass drum pounding painfully in Jonas's brain. His flashlight finds the Meg's heart, a five-foot rounded mass of muscle suspended by thick cords and blood vessels. Jonas wiggles forward and hooks his arm around the aorta. It has a, it is as thick as a tire tube and Jonas can feel the blood surging through it. Then the Meg rises and falls, whipping Jonas around like a bucking Bronco, but he holds on. And now bracing his feet against the chamber walls with his own chest pressed against the Meg's beating heart, he stabs the aorta, slashing it open. The Meg's blood as tremendous, under tremendous pressure explodes out, propelling Jonas backwards, ripping the flesh light from his hand uh, and then you know we see the meg die and i'm just like man dude what? i may have to go rub one out that was great <laughs> <laughs> I'm like ah we could have seen jason stay I, i'm holding out hope that maybe he kills a meg this way in part two that that Same would make here. me very happy uh, uh as you're reading that i'm having memories of one of the reasons why i think we were frustrated when the bone draft came in because i think he was paid well over a million dollars for that draft which is, of course, you're placing a marker on, you know, getting yeah. it moved forward. But because there was so little change and some of the stuff that was changed was not necessarily for the betterment of the script. There was a lot of frustration when it came in for what we paid for what we got and mm -hmm. that it didn't help us keep going down the field. Because now they're like, we got a one point five million dollar uh, lateral move here. This is this is this is not going to do what we needed to do. So that's another thing I hadn't I had forgotten thought about that for years but i remember now once the draft committee was like oh wait a sec like uh, word per word what do we get out of this so yeah and i'm sure even from his perspective it's kind of like the wheeler script worked i think the problem with it was that it was just too expensive the technology yeah. i don't think was quite there to do what needed to be done um great you know so i guess he could have stripped it way back but 
you know, as, as we've noted with his credits, he's not the guy you hire. His, his specialty is not finding ways to make your giant blockbuster into a reasonably priced uh, movie. You, you, you hire him because you're doing Indiana Jones three or lethal weapon two and Shane black is leaving. (laughs) So here's the thing. So the Boehm draft comes out. uh, One of the last ones I can see was from July, 97. October 97, Rennie Harlan is announced to direct Deep Blue Sea. And the article mentions that the Meg still has no director or anything attached yet. So when Deep Blue Sea is announced, what, what again is going through everyone's minds? Um, self-loathing and bitter recrimination because <laughs> the steps that we'd taken to try to navigate the, the Disney system uh, just were not delivering. We, we, we were not delivering and it was not sort of returning our investment. Um, Rennie, of course, was still somebody who could get a movie done and get made. And um, I think that everybody, based on uh, just the idea of Jurassic Shark, knew there was value. And sharks were just sort of becoming that sort of perennial thing as evidenced by your doc, uh, Steve. Like there's there's always going to be that fascination that was the fuse was lit by Jaws. And here we are. Uh, we were probably not going to win that race. And I think this is where it really started to sort of really had to look in the mirror and say, are we going to continue to push or is it just going to let the thing expire and then watch all of the turnaround costs and the millions and millions of dollars be a, be a thing that kills it forever. And that's kind of where it wound up, at least in terms of my participation in it. And do you remember like during all this time, do you remember any of, I realize you never attached a director, but were you coming close? Like, do you recall who you were maybe talking to or what fantasy? If I had been able to get to my, my files in the Valley, I probably could have pulled up, director's list but i don't think they would have been any different than every other director's yeah. list at the time of movies that uh, had this kind of tone and energy and, and price tag but we really even never got close to making offers because it was also the sort of thing where we're like well who do you cast because there's the whole chicken egg who's the director who can manage and handle this movie who would also make a uh, an actor of that caliber feel comfortable to be in this movie which then leads to tone which leads to this the it's it's one of the reasons why this podcast exists because there's development hell that is real <laughs> and that the calculus sometimes never is whether the script is good it's whether the elements can be aggregated in time for whoever's in charge at the time and then the regime changes or deep blue sea gets announced so many factors outside of this the creative uh action of getting the script to the place where you want to make it can impact whether it ever sees the light of day which is one of the reasons why i love this podcast because people need to know that it's never about good movie or bad movie any movie getting made is an unfettered miracle and the way you guys sort of deep dive into sort of the decisions that get made is one of the reasons why i not only wanted to come on but why i appreciate that this podcast even exists because people need to no yeah a movie getting made is almost feels like an accident when it's happening Mm -hmm. you're like oh wait this one's moving forward that's weird uh (laughs) yeah i'm trying to think of who i mean you know i feel like this was the will smith era i wouldn't be surprised if i read and i can't find it and this is going back in the 90s when early internet and this is it's probably wrong because when I was looking up this movie like crazy because I was so excited there was going to be another shark movie and there hadn't been a theatrical shark movie since like Jaws to Revenge, you know, and this was such an exciting time. I remember reading this. I cannot find it. So my, you know, young mind might have read it wrong, but I remember hearing that it was or reading that it was Deloy Lendow. Am I saying his name right? Oh, Delroy Del Lindau. Del Lindau. Del Del Lindau from the Five Bloods. Yeah, he was in talks and Rene Russo and possibly Gene Hackman. I went and I searched and I can't find any of that, but that's it could have just been a rumor or someone starting something up. I mean, this was back. I mean, I think around 97, 98 was when Ain't It Cool News was just starting to like get its toehold in. Yeah. Um, and I know that everybody in our office was talking to the guys, all those guys all the time. So you, there may be something in those archives there that is reflective of that. I can't find them. Like really? I'm crazy because I think that's where I read it, you know? And because I remember I read about Deep Blue Sea 2 on Ain't It Cool News about like one of the plots. And again, that's kind of erased from it also I can't find. So, so so sharks really are your jam. 
Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't know anymore after this movie because I'm burned out. But yeah, I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah next to unmade movies. Yeah, I love sharks, you know, obsessed, you know. Yeah, so. right, right now, Steve is in our friend Jim Coon's office working on his next documentary, which is all about movie novelizations, which that's the wall you see behind him, Craig. Yeah. Those are all tie-in novels. Hold on. But normally uh, Steve's uh, office yeah. at home. I'm not, I'm not bailing. I'm just going to go <laughs> pull off from the let's see uh, i know this normally steve's office at home is all shark posters that you see we've got scanners yeah oh nice bad news bears go to japan Ooh. of course it's alive oh that's a oh that's one. a beautiful cover the hearse wow oh, nice. man i barely of course, remember that movie empire strikes back oh that's a good one wait who wrote that one that donald was Do donald f glutt Steve knows um, the CE3K <laughs> diary. Just I know it's not a novelization, but that, that's a good thing for the Heim. And of course, Close Encounters. Yeah, I love Beautiful. those diaries. Like speaking of sharks, <laughs> Carl Gottlieb. As opposed to Gottlieb, I've got this one as well, which is like the official but not official PR version. But like Gottlieb's was Jaws the other one. one. Yeah, I didn't even know that other one existed. Superman, <laughs> last so son cool. of Krypton, and then another one which you never. The Howling. Oh, man, Howling. I love that poster. I have the Howling book that it's based on. Yeah, the original book, yeah. But there's nothing they, they, they like the tie-in. Uh, we got Flash Gordon, of course. Oh, excellent. Yes, that's a good one. I did manage to find Return of the Jedi. Oh, man, nice. you got all the good stuff. Damn, you got a lot. And this is yeah, this is a it was a it was a it was a it was a, it was a cast off, but it is the Jaws log. Oh, nice. I love so, this book. And the last I one I have, which is this fun, which I just the making of Raiders of the Lost Ark. So dope. So that's my that's my little novelization section of, of the bookshelf. <laughs> Sorry, awesome. I, I had to get a little nerdy. No, just a little bit. I'd love it. I guess to close out this oh, yeah, phase a, of the mag. Oh, sorry, Steve. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna close out really quick. Uh, I had a couple quotes from Alton really quick. Um, yeah, so Deep Blue Sea was announced, and then Deep Blue Sea would come out on July 30th, 1999. Uh, it came in third place that weekend behind Blair Witch Project and Runaway Bride. Uh, but it wound up doing about 60 or 70 didn't it domestically it, it made 73 million so it didn't do bad i think it had good water mouth mm -hmm. yeah I, I loved it and then alton he said uh he had high hopes when the book was sold to disney but grew frustrated when the scripts were being developed and he said they stuck wings on the shark i'm not kidding they wouldn't listen to anything i had to say my role has got to keep the science and not the ridiculousness for Hollywood's sake. One screenwriter had the shark growling. And then he said a Hollywood pictures president was fired and that's what got rid of the project. Uh, Wired would say that uh, Deep Blue Sea beat it to the box office and that's why it, it didn't come out. And that's what you had to say as well. So, But I would also, I, I don't think Steve is 100% wrong. I think there's a little bit of jadedness in those things and frustration as evidenced by the draft he generated to try and course correct but i don't think that he's wrong that there were regime changes there were things but ultimately all of those if this project is good enough all of those things can uh, be survivable but another hit movie then you just like suddenly you're not looking at making the movie in the next 18 months because everyone's gonna be thinking about deep blue sea and how it's released so no, and then suddenly the executives are like, well, I'm not going to make a movie five years. I make a decision about something five years from now. I'm just trying to make it to the next quarter. So yeah. there's just the politics overtake everything. And I think it just it sank under the weight of all of the things that were fighting against it. We were truly, no pun intended, swimming upstream. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, and, and building off of Alton's quotes there. Well, first, actually, first thing we've been getting what he said. One thing I forgot to mention in this is that. None of them use it quite to the extent that it was in the book. But one thing, I mean, it's such a big part of the book. It's actually the tagline of the book is if you see her glow, dot, 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 it's too late. Because a big thing in the book is that because the Megs evolved to be deep sea creatures, the Meg glows underwater. And there's some of that in all these scripts. And I, I, I assume they maybe just decided that that was like too weird to have in the movie that got made. My but, guess is whoever has to explain that expositionally, like the the, the actors be like, I how what am I supposed to say here? You know, what am I supposed <laughs> to do? But actually, I think it's interesting that he brought up the wings thing, and that's from 
I think very specifically the Wheeler draft is yes. the first time we see the shark. Uh, the enormous sea monster resembles a shark, but the pectoral fins are wider and hang lower, more reminiscent of wings like a manta ray. And to me, I interpreted that. First of all, I didn't really think of it as having wings, but I, I, it does say reminiscent of wings. So Alton's not wrong. Do you remember any of that? Was that just the idea of, again, because it's post Jurassic Park, trying caring less about it being a humongous great white shark and more of like a sea monster? If memory serves, it was to take what would be the shark that everyone knows and slightly modify its physiology to justify why it survives so long down below and has evolved slightly differently than the sharks that we know. Not it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, a distant cousin. And there again, some modifications. It's like an aftermarket car. That's all. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, um, I, if I recall, that's just some of the things that were behind that thought process. Cause otherwise yeah. You're just like, it's just a big shark. No, it's a Meg, which is a big shark, but it's this genus of shark, which has evolved from it. So, yeah. And uh, uh, and he complained, I, you know, I get it. He did his research and wanted the science to be accurate. So he was annoyed that the shark growled, which it does in all the scripts. Uh, that there's a funny part in Steve's doc where we talk about sharks growling in movies because this was not the first movie to have sharks growl. In it, no, and, and, and let's also remember, it's a script like you're trying to get people to get excited and to sonically and visually see a movie in their head. So you sometimes take liberal uh, justice in how you rhetorically set your prose on page. Makes sense. Yeah. And plus producers and stuff like that. You never know. Like, why is it making uh, no you know, noise? I also think a lot of people don't know that a shark can't make noise. I so. wanted the shark to sing, but that's the whole <laughs> different movie. I think, you know, uh, it's coming. Meg, the musical. Uh, I won't be, I mean, again, uh, this might be weird because this episode might come out after Meg 2 has been released. Um, but I'm hoping we get uh, other weirder creatures in that movie as well. But yeah, I guess, do you have any distinct memories of when the project kind of died, at least died for you? Like, what? how did that all end during your Because phase? there were so many factors for editing purposes. Because there were so many factors that were sort of like weighing against us and weighing against the movie honestly once they said they were just going to sort of put it in turnaround and we knew because of deep blue sea and because of some of the other things that were out there um and we did expose it to other places and there's so much against it they were just not interested in sort of pursuing um to steve's credit he never stopped believing um but there was that point the next time i heard about meg was when it was over at new line and it wound up sort of like surfacing there. And uh, uh, I, of course, I just, because I know all the executives, I call and say, how's it going with Meg? And they're like, we have maquettes <laughs> all over the office. It's super cool. But that, again, was such a hard thing to pull off because of the cost. Um, and then weirdly, it sort of went away from the new line sphere. And then uh, an old friend of mine who used to work in international distribution from Universal was the one who got a hold of it, Randy Greenberg, and was pushing it and wound up negotiating the deal with China for financing. And they were going to do an entire theme park as part of the production budget oh, over in China. Oh my God. So that there's a theme, there are theme park designs based on Meg for Chinese coast that exist. And oh. it was part of the plan to turn Meg into a, that's a, one of the, one of the books that fell off the shelf, um, <laughs> to turn Meg into the franchise that it looks like it's becoming, but in association with it, have theme parks and and all kinds of other ancillary products. So there's a whole separate Meg universe there coming out of China that you probably don't even know about. Um, you at least quickly uh, recovered from all this with <laughs> two franchises. You know, as you know, better than anybody, it's sometimes it's just you have to have a lot of things that you're pushing forward because you'd never know the one that you think is going to go this completely collapses like a star in on itself. And then two months later, the one that you haven't really paid attention to comes together in six months and you have no idea how these things come together and how they happen. It's uh, the magic of movies is just the miracle of movies. Well said. Well, thank you so much, Craig for joining us i think that's a perfect place to stop i appreciate you guys i appreciate what you do and uh, i look forward to having uh, my uh, adulpated brain whacked with memories as you continue to explore <laughs> the journey that is meg 
You can find Steve and I on all the socials and Best Movies Never Made on Twitter at Never Made Film and Instagram at Best Movies Never Made. And also, please consider joining our brand new Patreon. That's a great way to support the show, help make sure that we can keep doing it as long as we'd like to keep doing it, but also a good way to get extra content for you listeners where we talk about really all the things that we try to not talk about too much on the podcast itself, other weird themes of movies, things we're watching, kind of extra, extra long tangents with some of our guests from the regular episodes. So uh, hopefully we'll be seeing you guys there. Until next time, this is Josh Miller and Steven Scarlatta saying we won't see you at the movies. 